Hello, my name is Tim Schwartz and welcome to the Life After Blindness Spotlight. This is the podcast where I interview someone connected to the blind and visually impaired community. Join me as we explore their journey with a life after blindness. This week, I'm joined by a motivational speaker and author of the book, Unshattered, Overcoming Tragedy and Choosing a Beautiful Life, Carol Decker. Welcome to the Life After Blindness Spotlight. I am your host, Tim Schwartz, and thank you so much for joining me once again. As always, you can get more information about this in every episode by visiting lifeafterblindness.com. This week, I'm joined by a very special guest who is a mom, a wife, and a survivor. And I say a survivor because 10 years ago, my guest this week became a triple amputee, as well as, yes, lost her vision. She has written a book that is available now in paperback as well as in audio format. The name of her book is Unshattered, Overcoming Tragedy and Choosing a Beautiful Life. She is Carol Decker. Carol, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yes, thank you for having me, Tim. It's my honor. I am so happy to have you on the show, Carol, because your story really speaks to a lot of different feelings and emotions and experiences and all the different things that you've been through quite honestly, are things that I think a lot of different people have experienced. Uh, you know, as, as you know, I've talked with you about this. I don't think a person has to have been an amputee or even have lost vision to understand your story and to connect with your story because your story is one of a lot of the different emotions and a lot of different experiences because of what you did go through 10 years ago. And uh, we will get into that in a moment. But as I always like to do, I always like to go back before what happened to a person, before their vision loss, before their disability, whatever it is that happened to them that uh, has brought them to me, quite honestly. Um, you know, let's let's talk about the person and, and the background and, and where you came from. So growing up, you're a West Coast girl, correct? Yes, that's correct. So yeah, I grew up in Eastern Washington in a town named Kennewick, which is part of the Tri-Cities, which is Richland, Pasco, and Kennewick. And some people know Richland as Hanford, where they actually made the atom bomb. Ah, okay. Well, that's, the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> everywhere so, is yes, known for I, something, yeah. I glow at night, you know, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to everything else going on, my goodness, yeah, glow at night. That's all you need. Um and so growing up out West and well, the Northwest, you, um, you know, you had probably what I would say is you know, your typical nuclear family. That being said, you, uh, you, you grew up with a couple of brothers, didn't you? Yes, I did. I have two older brothers. One is seven years older named Heath and the other one is five years older named Sean. And they are my half brothers, but I never called them that and never thought of them like that. They were just my brothers and we were a very close family. And as we'll find out later, the determination and the fearlessness that you have and or developed over time probably came from uh, maybe maybe kind of some of that sibling, I don't want to say rivalry, but some of that sibling uh, pushing going on as a child, a little, a little bit of the brothers being around helped uh, help develop some of what you became? Yes, I definitely would say they taught me to be fearless, you know, from shooting me with a BB gun or siphoning gas or jumping off cliffs into the Columbia river, you know, all sorts of things that they would dare me to do. And I loved every minute of it. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that was 
an interesting time, especially with having two older brothers that probably went back and forth between, Hey, you know, that's my little sister, be careful. And then, Hey, I want to pick on her too. You know, probably the, what was there that kind of back and forth of protecting you, but also wanting to pick on you themselves? Yes, they definitely protected me. Luckily, they both wouldn't gang up on me at the same time. You know, usually one would kind of, you know, feel bad and let me go or whatever. But no, they were actually really good brothers, very thoughtful and always included me, which, you know, sometimes older brothers don't want to include their younger sister. And they always invited me to do things. And especially when I was 12, they bought me my first snowboard. And they would take me with their buddies up to the mountain to snowboard with their friends, which was amazing as a young girl. (laughs) I'll bet it was, especially to be able to just go out there at that age and be able to have that kind of an experience. Not something that probably a lot of younger children get to experience, although maybe out there they do. Um, I'm from the Midwest, so, you know, we don't necessarily think about snowboarding, although we do have some slopes here that we can do that on. But, uh, but yeah, so I can, I can believe that that was a great experience for you and your brothers and being able to have those experiences together through sports, through family and forming that bond early on. I know we'll get into it, but that, that really kind of set the table for, for your life to come, didn't it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, family was a big deal and being close to my brothers was always important and, and as well as my mom and my dad. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next is your your parents as well. Uh, as you said, these were half brothers, although you never really thought about them that way. But uh, but you were still very close to your, your mom and dad growing up, right? Yeah, my my dad basically, you know, raised my brothers and I since they were really young. And he and my mom were married until I was about 14 and then they divorced a couple years later, which was probably one of the hardest things for me in my life. Cause I had a pretty beautiful childhood. I can honestly say that. And we had lots of vacations on the Oregon coast going out into the ocean and, and having fun as a family, lots of ba- backyard barbecues and sports and things like that like you mentioned. And so that was really hard when my parents split, but when you have challenges or trials in your life, you eventually learn things from them. And my mom and I became best friends and, and I realized how much my dad still loved me. So yeah, good things still come. Yeah, absolutely. It's always difficult whenever you have any kind of adversity like that or dealing with something like that and dealing with it at that age, especially as a teenager, you've already got that teenage angst kind of thing going on and, you know, things, things that you're going through in your own life and then having your parents divorce. But like you said, realizing, Hey, just because they divorced doesn't mean that my father doesn't love me any less. Now you're closer to your mom. And uh, like you said, you know, your brothers were still your brothers. It was never any kind of a, a difference there. And with your childhood, along with all that, as you just mentioned, you were involved in a lot of sports. Uh, from from what I read in your book, you were involved in softball, volleyball, gymnastics. You, you did a lot of different things growing up, didn't you? Yes, I did. My I think my influence of my dad uh, played a big part in that because he's a big sports guy. Um, but I just I really had a passion for it. I even played basketball for a while, but that wasn't really my sport. So, but I, I played volleyball, softball, gymnastics for about eight years. And yeah, I loved every minute of it and loved competing and loved having fun with all my friends when I would do that as well. And again, as we talk about 
these things happening early in your life, that competition that you loved and learned from these sports, again, had a lot to do, I'm sure, with how your life progressed going forward. True. I think it it drove me to, you know, my dad always saw this potential in me and tried to push me harder and harder and um which which helped me later on when I went through my difficult times of becoming an amputee and blind, of being able to set goals and push myself harder and harder as well. You know, I talk about in the book uh being in a gymnastics tournament and falling off the balance beam. And at that point, you know, when you're younger you may not have thought about it like this, but you could have quit and walked off and never done gymnastics again, but I chose to get back up and continue moving on. And that's kind of the same thing that happened to me later in life. I had to make that choice of whether I was going to give up or pick up. Absolutely. And that's a really great foundation to work from. I often wonder in my own life, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, without that foundation, would I have gotten through things the way I did? You know, of course still would have been difficult, would have been hard, but that foundation and, and that support and that, you know, the family that you had and, and the experiences you had growing up, that foundation really, really helps develop you and helps you get through things later that you don't even realize are going to happen. Oh, totally. That's the number one thing I tell people to this day is I would never be able to do this without my support system. You know, if, if you go through something like I did having sepsis and losing your limbs and your sights and having to completely relearn how to do everything again. If you think you can do something like that alone, then I think you're probably going to set yourself up for failure because you have to accept other people's help and, and be able to, to lean on those around you and their love and support. Absolutely. Now, before we move on to some of your more young adult experiences in college and things like that, I do remember reading in the book that I don't know that you performed music or played music at all, but you were and are a big lover of music, correct? That's correct. No, I have no musical talent whatsoever. My husband and my two daughters do. My husband, actually, when I met him, he played the timpani in the orchestra at the college we went to and also plays uh, his drums as well and has played the marimba and the piano and that was definitely one thing that attracted me to him because I didn't have any musical talent whatsoever, <laughs> but I have always loved music. My brothers were both uh, played music and were in bands and things like that. And we've always gone to concerts and we've always loved music and even more so now, Tim, I'm sure you can relate as a blind person, music can really affect you in a different way. It pretty much goes straight to my heart and, and I feel it so much more. It can be very therapeutic, isn't it? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I, I can feel the emotion when someone's singing a certain song that they have emotion with in a different way or yeah, I, I, I always had a love for music my whole life, but being blind now, it's just, it's just different, especially hearing live music. I'm sure that music was probably a big help to you therapy wise with what you've, what you went through later on. For sure. And, you know, for me, when I listen to music now, it's almost like I'm like looking at pictures for somebody. It brings back a memory of where I was when I heard that song or what was happening in my life. And when I was in the hospital going through, you know, pain and anxiety and depression, uh, my family would bring books and different things for me to try to listen to. But I didn't really want to listen to anything like that. And my mom brought in a water CD and that was 
that was calming to me. I would ask them to turn it on for me when I was having a hard time. And, and even to this day, you know, when I hear fountains or waterfalls or, or the rain, that, that sense of calm comes over me in peace. If I remember correctly, there was a point in your book where you were telling that story of being in the hospital and we'll get into more of this in a moment, but your, your mom was in the room, I believe, and you were having some anxiety issues or something was going on that was upsetting you. And she immediately knew that was the go-to. She's like, let me put your, let me put your water music on. Let me get that turned on for you because she knew that was going to be what you needed in that moment to help calm you down. Yeah, that's true. You know, my mom was there and she was actually trimming my nails and I told her she missed a finger and she said, no, I didn't. And for some reason, my memory was betraying me and I didn't remember that my feet and my hand and my right ring finger had been amputated earlier. And because when you can't see it, actually, uh, it's, it's just not quite my memory was just sort of playing tricks on me, I guess. And I remember getting upset and my mom getting upset about the situation. And I just kind of sat back and was like taking it all in, like, wow, this really did happen to me. And she did turn on that, that water CD and helped me through that. I thought that was a very poignant part of the book where she realized this is something my daughter needs. And, you know, this is what we need to do because Obviously, you know, as you said, it was that out of sight, out of mind between that and everything else going on with you at the hospital. You obviously just didn't understand and, and, and you know, we're in, an, in a place where you needed something. You needed to be able to be calmed and, and, and be helped. And she was right there to do that. So I thought that was a very poignant uh, moment, you know, throughout your story. So you mentioned a moment ago about your husband, Scott. And I want to get into meeting Scott and, uh, and, and your relationship, but let, let's talk first about your young adult life going into college. Cause you went away to college, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I actually graduated high school and went to a community college. It's just about 20 minutes from where I lived, but I quickly felt that it wasn't the right thing for me. And a lot of my friends were at this other college at the time, and I went to visit them, and I was like, okay, I want to come here. And so I went into the admissions office, and I said, how do I get in? And they told me what to do, and that the easiest way to get in was in summer school. So I went back home and did everything I needed to do to prepare for that and got into summer school, and yeah. And what was your primary focus, or what was what was your study and major? Back then, it was elementary education. I wanted to be a teacher and I really loved my classes at the time and everything. But then the more I thought about it, you know, I love helping people. And I think I would have been the kind of person that would have taken every kid home with me that didn't have a good home. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so I kind of changed directions after graduating with an AA degree I went back home and started working at a doctor's office and really found a love for helping patients and working in the medical field. So I changed my direction to that. And at first working at the doctor's office, you were just kind of a jack of all trades, do whatever they wanted you to do. And then later on became a medical assistant, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it was amazing. I was kind of a gopher girl and learned how to do transcription and filing and assisting with procedures and cleaning equipment and checking people in and all that stuff. And, you know, back then certification was different. You could get it through the state instead of going to um, a school, a technical school for that as well. So I was able to get that done and, 
and my husband and I were married in 1998 and we moved to Seattle and I was able to get a good job at a cardiology office where I worked as a medical assistant. That's awesome that it all worked out that way for you because as you said, you were kind of the gopher and you learned this and learned that and, and made that into something. So it was a really great opportunity. And then, like you said, you met your husband, Scott, and, uh, and, you know, were afforded the other opportunities that you, you had. And let's, let's talk about that meeting. Let's, let's take a step back and talk about meeting your husband, Scott, because there was this moment in college where you saw this guy. And I really like this in the book because it, I, I famously have a similar kind of story. When I first met my wife, people that know me know that we met through a friend of a friend uh, who had called me up and said, Hey, I have this friend who has some computer issues can you help her? And I said, sure, I'll help her out. And we worked out on it over the phone and tried to walk her through some things. And she was very appreciative of it. And to thank me, she took me out to dinner to thank me for helping her out fixing her computer. And after the dinner, I told our mutual friend, what do I have to do to get to know her better? I (laughs) have to get to know her. Oh my gosh. You know, and uh, you kind of had a similar from afar experience of, Ooh, who's that guy? Tell me about that. Yeah, I've never been smitten like that before. And my my friend Lisa, at the time we were sitting there waiting to go to a um, use one of the tanning beds because we were going to one of our friend's wedding and we didn't want to look pale. <laughs> that's what you did back then. <laughs> exactly. In, in the 90s. And, and he worked at the, it was kind of like a racket sports club where they had a pool and uh tanning beds and they had tennis and pickleball and all that stuff and we were sitting on the couch waiting and he walked through this door through the pool room and my jaw just about dropped and I'm elbowing my friend Lisa next to me saying oh my gosh look at that guy and of course we have completely different tastes (laughs) (laughs) she wasn't attracted to him but I was and another guy that he worked with she actually knew and they were dating and so arranged for us a few weeks later uh, to watch a movie together and I was just really impressed by him and and yeah I actually within those three weeks before we watched the movie I I shamefully admit that I kind of stalked him a little bit and found out where his classes were and so I could strategically place myself where he was so Make That's sure that no matter what, you were part of his life, whether he wanted you to be or not, right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. it worked, though. And apparently it worked. <laughs> it did. Didn't you, uh, not, again, not to spoil too much of the book, but didn't you kind of ask him on three dates at once or something? I did. Yeah, I know. It sounds <laughs> like I'm pretty desperate, right? <laughs> so, but I, uh, yeah, I worked at a local pizza place called Crago's, and he came in with his brother and they ordered breadsticks and and made sure that I was there to deliver them. And, and later that night, I remember asking him to go to a concert and then canoeing and then spaghetti for dinner at my house. I know. And, and he laughed and said, yes. <laughs> and I love which, that moment. Cause it's yes. Well, which one? Well, just know, yes. Right? <laughs> and, and that had to have been a great moment for you. Cause here you are so smitten from afar, so interested and obviously he was too, because he didn't say no. And he just said, sure, why not? Let's do it. You know? So that, right. that was the beginning of, of something I would say is, is pretty darn special. Yes, definitely special. He is my soulmate and the love of my life. And I'm really glad that I took the initiative because I don't know if he ever would have, that's just the kind of person he is. He's pretty shy. So. 
Well, that's percussionists for you. I, I was in orchestra growing up and, and I started off as a music ed major. So I understand that's a percussionist for you, but okay. we'll forgive him for that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, going forward though, Scott really, you know, turned out to be the perfect person to have in your life. And, and that whole situation, as funny as it was, and maybe silly and, you know, and, and maybe the way you felt about it at the time, as awkward as it might've been, worked out pretty well, I'd say, because honestly, and I, I told you this before we started recording, when I read your book and, and he writes the introduction so beautifully, he writes the introduction and uh, I'll admit it. I'll, I'll say by the end of the introduction, I was, I was teary eyed. I was a little misty and I just wanted to reach through the book and give him a hug and say, yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. Good. Great. You know, because I could relate to a lot of what he was saying and supporting you as his wife and being there, even though it was difficult and it was hard on all of you, he he described everything that he felt so well and, and trying to be there for you as a spouse, as a friend, as a soulmate, like you said, and, uh, and he's really been a rock for you in a way. Oh yeah, for sure. He is definitely my rock and has been by my side for every, every hard part and every fun part. And, uh, you know, it, it, when you go through something like this, it, it is really traumatic, you know, for our relationship. And, and I remember my therapist telling me that, you know, marriages don't last and I didn't want to lose my relationship with my husband. I'd already lost too much. I'm sure that was quite disheartening when your therapist sa saying something like that, that, you know, Hey, you go through tragedy like that. It, it's not probably going to work out well. That probably was very disconcerting, but you knew Scott better than maybe they did. And you probably had an inkling that, Hey, we can, we can make this work. Right. You know, I, I understand there are lots of statistics out there like that, but I wasn't about to lose my husband. You know, I remember at the time I wasn't able to wear my wedding ring. And so he bought me a chain so I could wear my wedding ring around my neck. And so I could, you know, have that symbolism of having my husband with me and close to my heart. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about that. Then the day that tragedy struck that really changed your life as the title of that chapter in your book is from unshattered to shattered, at least at that point, it was a pretty crazy chain of events there. You had had one child already and were pregnant with your second child and the 33 month or 33 week mark, I believe you went into the hospital. Talk to me about that. Yes, that's correct. I was 33 weeks pregnant with my second daughter and I felt like I had the flu. You know, I woke up uh, on Monday morning after I was at my grandmother's funeral and I had a fever of about 102.7 that day, and I was just exhausted and weak and could barely pick up Chloe from her crib. So I had someone watch her for me and just rested all day. And then the next day, my fever went up to 103.7, and I started having contractions. And so that's when I knew I needed to get to the hospital. So my husband drove us all the way up to Seattle from Enumclaw, which is about an hour drive north. and by the time we got to the doctor's office, which is attached to Swedish hospital, I was in agonizing pain and, you know, was begging for any sort of pain medication at that time. So sure. they, they quickly wheeled me over from the doctor's office to the hospital, to the labor and delivery unit and got me hooked up to the fetal monitor, gave me a shot for the pain and 
the room sort of went quiet. My husband stepped over to the corner to call my mom and let her know we're going to have the baby. And next thing you know, there were several people in my room saying, we have to get the baby out right away. And wheeling me down the hall on the gurney and taking me for an emergency C-section. And I kissed him goodbye. And little did I know that would be the last time I would see my husband's face. And at that point, you really still didn't know fully what was going on other than the fact that they were saying, we have to take the baby now. We've got to get you in. We've got to do this right away. You still really didn't have any ideas to why or what was going on, right? That's correct. I had no idea that I had a bacterial infection from strep pneumonia and that I was going into sepsis and that I was going to be in a literal fight for my life. Sophia was delivered at four pounds, 15 ounces and um, quickly taken over to the NICU because they thought maybe she was going to have the infection as well. And they really didn't know that I probably had an infection either, but they were trying to find the source of it. And um, but basically my my blood pressure was plummeting and my heart rate was skyrocketing. My they had to put a central line in to be able to access and get give me antibiotics and different medications and try to get my blood pressure up because that's, you know, the main cause of sepsis, um, your vital signs. And your, you know, sepsis basically causes organ failure and tissue damage. So my fever went as high as 106.9 and my feet and hands started to become black because they were dying. The, you know, your body's smart. It's trying to save your major organs. And and losing the lack of blood flow to your extremities. Now, is that as it's trying to compensate for what it needs to do to save your major organs? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And so here you are going through all this. You don't really know what's going on. Of course, your family doesn't know what's going on. The doctors are testing all kinds of things. They know that you've gotten the sepsis, of course. And you, at some point in here, I mean, you, like you said, your, your, your newborn daughter, Sophia, is in the NICU. You go to the ICU. And you ended up in a medically induced coma, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I had, I had no idea what had happened and what was going on at the time. So yeah. So they had to, you know, pull my husband aside, the doctors, and they told him how sick I was and that, you know, eventually after 20 days, they brought me out of the drug induced coma because in order to save my life, they wanted to amputate both of my feet, my left hand and my right ring finger. And my husband really wanted to talk to me. He wanted to get my permission. And so they brought me out of the drug-induced coma. And I was intubated at the time, so I wasn't able to speak. But I had to shake or nod my head to answer. And he was always concerned about my pain. And I I remember him asking me if I was okay. And, he's, and I shook my head yes. And then, of course, he could tell that I was agitated and kind of looking around the room. And he said, is it Sophia? Do you want to see your baby? And and I said, yeah. Well, I didn't say yeah. I nodded. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they made special arrangements to bring Sophia in to meet me. You know, that's not a normal situation. But the nurses and doctors weren't sure if I was going to survive and wanted mother and daughter to meet. And I, I definitely remember that moment. We met cheek to cheek and and I got to smell her new baby smell and and feel her eyelashes and her fingers and everything on my face. And it was a really beautiful moment. And, and then a week later they, they had to perform the amputations 
And at that time, they noticed that I was looking past the doctors in my family and ordered a CT scan, which diagnosed that I had ocular neuropathy and was going to leave me permanently blind. But at the time, even though they felt, your doctors and even your family around you felt that this was going to be something to leave you permanently blind, that wasn't really on your radar yet, was it? No, not at all. You know, at first they told my family and I that the my blindness, that the ocular nerve might, you know, start working again. There was sort of, you know a hope of that. And so it was something we didn't really talk about. But later on, you know, they did another CT scan and it was continually progressing to to dying, basically the optic nerve. And so my vision would never recover. I think that speaks to the severity of the situation when you're talking about you're in a situation where for 20 days you're in this medically induced coma they end up having to make the decision, and, and your husband, of course, the first of many decisions that I'm sure were very hard on him to have to make with or without you about amputating your feet and your hand and your finger. And so you had so many things you had to be concerned about and worried about, so concerning that, like you said, they they kind of broke protocol in a way and brought your daughter in to see you. That, that really speaks to how severe the situation was and really why vision loss was on the back burner, because after all... Even the nurses thought it was so bad that they needed to get your daughter in there then, or you may not get the ever meet her. Right. And I also suffered a, another complication, which is called DIC. It's called disseminating intravascular coagulation, which basically your your body doesn't know whether to clot or to bleed. And so I had blood clots forming um, on the tops of my thighs and my forearms and my abdomen, and they had to remove the dead tissue. And we're going to have to use the skin from my back as donor tissue to be able to heal those wounds on my body. And so there you are at this point, your your daughter actually was released well before you were, of course. You've now had both your feet amputated, your left hand, as you said, your right ring finger. You've had skin grafts now to, to take care of the DIC issue, as you said. And oh, by the way, you have this vision loss that, as as you said, you know, right. you can't even begin to to even put in the context yet. And you're you're still in the hospital, kind of dealing with all this. And because of the medication, because of the hospital and everything, it was really difficult on you during that period for obvious reasons. But even further, because a lot of times you weren't really sure what was happening around you, right? Correct. Yeah. You know, it, you're kind of really medicated and your mind can play tricks on you at different times. And I still wasn't able to communicate when they would do surgeries and stuff. They would close my trach and things like that. And yeah, it, it's amazing what your mind can do in those situations. And, and I really, I just kind of went through the, you know, the flow of everything, you know, the nurses took care of me, the doctors and my family was there. And I didn't really, I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't roll over in bed or anything. So I, my body had atrophied so much as well that it, it was difficult for me to even try to sit up in bed. And thus began the long process of almost learning to relearn, if that makes sense, trying to relearn a lot of things that you were already able to do and comfortable to do. You had to figure out how do I do this missing a finger? How do I do this not having my left hand? How do I do this not being able to see what I'm doing? And you had to 
persevere through a lot of therapy and, and learning how to, to do these things again. Yeah. So I spent three months in the hospital at that time and then they released me to go home for a couple of weeks. And that's basically when my freight train of reality sort of hit me and realized that as soon as I got home, my husband had to help me to the bathroom and take me to my bed and my pain and anxiety just spiraled out of control when I went home. And I, I remember specifically telling my husband, I don't belong here. I can't take care of my children. I can't be your wife. Like you've got to take me back to the hospital. And he was very, you know, he was my rock again and said, no, we can take care of you. And this is where you belong. And we're going to, we're going to get through this, you know, and it was really hard to believe <laughs> at that time, you know, switching from getting your antibiotics and pain meds through an IV to now taking them orally, trying to stay up on, on top of the pain was really, really hard to do. And I really fell into a really dark, just, you know, despair and depression. And I really didn't want to live when I came home. That was the hard part for me. And in that moment, when you're in that very dark place and you're in that depression, because you're asking yourself, how do I do this? How do I do that? How am I going to survive and do these things on my own or even with help? You're, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. And, and in that dark place, that's when we talked about before the family support, the friend support really came into play for you because at that point, uh, I believe around that period of time is when you guys hired someone to come into the home. You had your family around people were supporting you either, you know, in the house or financially or in other ways. And your brothers, I know were there at that point. Um, and, and your husband, of course, and in the book, you said, I believe it was to your brother. You said something very poignant that again, just teared me up because I understand the feeling of it and being in that dark place. And you very seriously requested something from your brother. Yeah. He came over and he said, is there anything I can get you? And I tried to look directly at his face and I said, yeah, you can get me a gun. Because I just, at that point, I didn't know how I was going to do anything or why I should even be here. And I, I yeah, I didn't want to live. And thankfully, your brother there with you and your family and your husband, of course, everybody around you rooting for you, praying for you, being there for you, and that perseverance that we talked about that you had as a child, the competitive nature, your your goal setting, all the things that made Carol Carol, thankfully came through going forward through getting past that dark depression, getting past therapy and moving yourself forward. Yeah. You know, he came around and took my face in his hands and said, no, we're not going to go there and we're going to get you better. And yeah, my family, they were there. They would drive four hours every week to come be by my side. And my small town of Enumclaw threw a fundraiser and there were 5,000 people there. And as they wheeled me in, they all stood up and clapped for me. And I just, tears just started streaming down my face. And I couldn't believe that complete strangers were, were willing to, to offer their time and efforts and money and, um, and help me and my family through this difficult situation. And it really made me go home and think about that. I had a choice, you know, I had the right things to help me. And now it was my turn to make the choice of, you know, getting better. Absolutely. And you almost didn't go to that event. Right. And, and it turned out going to that event kind of set in your mind, Hey, I can do this because if they believe I can, 
I should believe I can, that really kind of helped build you up going to that event, even though you almost didn't. Right. That's exactly right. It felt like there was this giant cheerleading section telling me, you can do it (laughs) and we're all going to help you. (laughs) But then to make matters worse, and it's always one of these things, my wife always says, when it rains, it pours. And if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to me. She just sometimes, you know, it sometimes feels like that. It may not be true. It may not be always the case, but you sometimes feel that way. But it was your brother, Sean, that you had said that to about the gun, correct? Correct. And then later on through this process, he did pass away. Yes. So I was home for two weeks and then I was readmitted to the inpatient rehabilitation center at Harborview. And that's basically where you learn to, you know, do adult daily living activities again by learning how to dress and shower and, you know, all those things. And the second day that I was at inpatient, my brother passed away and that is more difficult than anything else I've ever been through. I, I adore and love my brother dearly and would give anything to be with him. And for the first time though, I realized that other people needed me, you know, my mom and my other brother and my dad were in pain and suffering from losing my brother and they needed me to be there for them to support them instead of me needing all the support. And I think that that sometimes, you know, helped me to be able to understand that I did have a purpose. You know, I remember going back after his funeral and thinking, why am I here? If my brother's gone and I'm here, then what is my purpose? And for me, it was just being a mother. I waited a long time to have my babies. My husband and I were married nine years and that's all I ever wanted was to be a mother. So. Yeah, of course. And as tragic as his loss was, I mean, of course, at that point here, you are having lost, you know, your feet and your hand and your vision and all this stuff going on with you and your depression and everything you're going through. Like you said, his tragic loss in an odd way ended up being a blessing in disguise. Like you just described, because where you had everybody you know, not just family, friends, but all these strangers supporting you and being there for you and helping you out. Now here was the reversal of you saying, okay, well, I know I'm going through all this garbage. I've got all these things going on that I'm dealing with, but now they need me. Now I need to be who I need to be for them and, and, uh, and be supportive of them. And that really, in a way, like I said, is maybe a blessing in disguise to help propel you forward and give you strength. It really was. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time, just like I think most of us, when we have things like that happen, we don't realize what it does for us in that situation. It wasn't until I was able to look back and reflect later at what that that particular event did for me. They started to realize that I was motivated to be a mom again. And so they centered all of my therapy, you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy and everything about being able to be a mom again. And that really motivated me and made me more determined to get better and to set more goals. Yeah. I was really interested in that part of your book when you were talking about driving yourself and and pushing yourself through therapy. And and you said in the beginning, it was so difficult and you just weren't sure how you were going to do these things. And then one of the therapists along with you kind of got that idea of, all right, well, what are we doing this for? Why are we doing this? Yes, we're doing this for you and for you to live your life and, and, and push forward. But yeah, it was all about being a mom and getting to be at home all the time, not just part-time, not just on the weekends, but all the time 
with your daughters and with your family and to be able to be a full-time mom. Yeah. You know, when I first went home for those couple of weeks, my, my little girl, Chloe, that I spent every day of her life with her was scared of me and I couldn't pick her up or do anything. And I wanted to be their mother so badly. I, and I didn't want my disabilities to affect them in a negative way. And so they found out that that was my passion. <laughs> um, <and laughs> well, I, yeah. You know, for anybody going through something, I think that that's what you have to find is something that you love so much and you're willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to, to get better. Yeah. Because as dark as it might seem and as bad as it might be, obviously there's many reasons to continue on for yourself, but then when you really step back and, and, and realize it's not just me. There's so many other people that I do touch that I do affect in that moment. You may not feel like you touch those people and affect those people. You may feel all oh, well, they, you know, they can carry on without me around and I don't need to be here. And, and that dark place can do that to you, but it's good to realize it's, it's not just about me persevering for me. It's about my daughters and my husband and my family and my friends and living a life. And what can I still provide in life? What can I still do? What can I still contribute? Right. Well, and I think we talked about this earlier, Tim, it's about having patience, developing that patience and then having a sense of humor. You know, I learned quickly to kind of laugh about things and to, you know, when someone would come in the room and say, can I give you a hand? I would be like, yeah, do you have a nice pretty one? Cause I need one. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. My favorite mantra, patience and a sense of humor. And it's, it's absolutely true. If you're going to get through anything like this, obviously patience is an important factor and a sense of humor is just going to help propel you through all of it. And it's sometimes hard to find it, sometimes hard to find both of them. But if right. you can, it, it can be so helpful to to getting through not just the dark places, but therapy and, and, and just any kind of thing going on, which hopefully I'm not spoiling too much of the book. Hopefully your publisher doesn't get too mad at me. But <laughs> one of my favorite stories, because again, it's something that I think a lot of us can relate to when you were going through therapy and pushing yourself to be there for your kids and to say, you know what, I'm going to get home and do this because I want to be a mom again. Tell me about the Lucky Finn story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I was in inpatient rehab, they would let me go home on the weekends. And one weekend I was home and I was sitting in my wheelchair and I didn't have my prosthetics on or anything. And my older daughter, Chloe, came up to me and said, mommy, come see the fish. And I, at that point, I this was like, Oh, okay. You know, and in my brain, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to get out of this wheelchair? You know, my daughter wants me for the first time and I will do anything. And I don't remember if I just flung myself on the floor or what, but I got out of the wheelchair and crawled on my, you know, on my knees and elbows over to where I could hear her voice. And she had this little small television toy television that had little fish that would move across the screen. And so I laid down on my belly and she was next to me on her belly. And I was asking her, you know, what kind of fish do you see? And cause she didn't know I was blind and sure. couldn't see. And so she's describing, you know, the blue fish and a yellow fish. And then I said, is there a Nemo fish? And she says, yeah, there's an orange one and he's got black and white stripes. And the last movie that I actually saw with Chloe before I became blind was finding Nemo. And for all of you that have seen Finding Nemo, he has a lucky fin. So 
I pointed to my left arm that was missing my hand and I said, mommy has a lucky fin. And she thought that was so funny. And so from now on, we always call my left arm, my lucky fin. I think that's a great story because it shows that despite everything going on, you were able to find that one thing that could begin that connection again. Not that you had lost the connection, but I know it was, you know, just difficult for you and for her when she would come to see you in the hospital. Of course, she didn't know how to react to mommy being in the bed and, and all the things going on, all the equipment hooked up to you and everything going on. That That's very, you know, upsetting for a small child. And I think she was, what, 18 months to two years old during that period of time. Is that about right? Yeah, she was 18 months. And yeah. yeah, her world went from me being there every day to not being there. And yeah. And so for, for you to be able to find little things like that to say, all right, okay, this is a way that we can connect again and, and find ways to interact. And boy, I can be a mom. I can do these things and, and find a way to explain it to her in a way that she'll understand and accept and realize, yep, I am still mommy. Right. And, and it was really cool because they would inspire me because, you know, they were, you know, crawling on the ground or they were learning to do something new at the time as well. You know, I, I go, I call it different phases. I went through the infant phase where I didn't know how to do anything for myself. And then I was a toddler just like them. And I was yelling out, I did it every, every time I would do something new, it was like this big victory. And so they were doing the same thing at the same time. And I would look at them not physically, but visually in my mind and figure out what they were doing. I was like, okay, well, if they can do it, I got to figure out how to do this too, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got to find a way. And if, if a toddler can do it, we can do it. The, there is a point and we, we don't have to talk about the story. We'll save some things for the book, but uh, the, the part where you were just so frustrated and you're like, yeah, I understand two-year-olds now. I I, we, we, right. I I won't say more than that, but I just I, I laughed out loud. I'm like, yeah, been there. You know, when you're when you're losing your vision, especially, and and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? And then in your case, one-handed and really, you know, four-fingered. You know, how do I make this work? How do I do this? And you're just so frustrated. You're like, well, if a two-year-old can do it, so can I. You know, and persevere through it and say, yep, I got to do this. You know, for me, for my kids, and find a yeah. way to do it. And through that, you know, finding that way to connect with your daughter and finding ways to do that. And, and you had such great therapists and support systems, you know, not just your family and your husband, but it sounded like in, in reading through your book, you, you've got a lot of good support, even in therapy, people that drove you and pushed you, not just physically, not just with your, you know, prosthetics, but even visually as you started to finally, because for all this time, still in denial about the vision, but you finally, even once you started getting through the rest of it, learning to walk again, learning to eat again, learning to do all these things again, you know, deal with your prosthetics, finally were able to start accepting, well, maybe I don't want to say accepting, but understanding the vision loss more. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It is about accepting one thing at a time, because if I thought about everything all at once, it was way too overwhelming and frustrating and you felt like you couldn't do anything. So you had to focus on one thing at a time, you know, whether it was for that hour of physical therapy where I was learning to walk or the next hour I was learning to pick up a cup or a mug to drink out of, or, you know, trying to get myself dressed. You know, I, I just had to focus on that one thing at the one time and not think about everything else. And then you know, working with my psych therapist, 
I was able to also do rehab in my home with her for two years once I got out of the hospital. And, you know, that's how long it took me to learn everything again. So um, she, you know, helped me to realize that I needed to be in the present and to be able to, you know, concentrate on one thing at a time. And she sort of called it like my bookshelf. And I had all these different books, you know, like walking on prosthetics or missing my hand or not being able to see my children. And sometimes you could take that book off the shelf and look at it. And other times you, you it was too painful to look at it, you know, and that's that acceptance. Yeah. I think it's a really great way to look at it, to accept and move through one thing at a time, because you can absolutely get overwhelmed trying to look at all of it. If you were to sit there and say, okay, how am I going to do this with everything and list off every single thing that had happened to you and try to tackle all of it at one time, uh, you may have still been successful, but I don't know how successful and how quickly you could have been. It, it probably made it a lot easier to say, you know what, we're going to tackle these one thing at a time and check them off the list. And when I get to the next one, I get to the next one. Right. Totally. Because I had to relearn everything. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and relearning everything as you said, took quite a long time because you're learning, you know, to, to dress yourself and to feed yourself and, and then even learning, how am I going to take care of my children? You know, how am I, how do I change a diaper? Can I change a diaper? Can I, <laughs> you know, can I feed my child? Can I cook? Can I, what, what can I do? What can't I do? And right. you found, even if you thought, well, I can't do that. You found the word can't just doesn't work because you've got to find a way to do it. Right. It's all about adapting to your own world and what your needs are. And I think for any person that has a certain disability, that's what we do. We just figure out a different way of doing it. And so when you were finding all these different ways to do things with you know, new prosthetics and new technology for your prosthetics and finding a way to you know, use what you had, you know, the hand that you had and the abilities that you had, and you finally were able to say, all right, I've dealt with all that. I've gotten myself to a, a certain point with all that. Okay, I'm going to be visually impaired probably for the rest of my life. What was that like? Because I know at one point when when you tried or someone uh, locally tried to give you services from the, you know from the, for the blind, you were dismissive of that because you were still in denial. And later on, you finally were coming around to that. What was that like? Yeah, I think like I said at the beginning you know, there was always this hope that maybe my vision would return. Um, and then I remember I gotten home after having a surgery and surgeries were always hard for me because they can be very depressing. It's, it's a big setback in your recovery. And I had to have multiple surgeries over the next few years. And I just remember it had been almost a year, I think, when I came home and I remember crying to my husband and just saying, I'm never going to see again. And once I accepted that, you know, it was hard. I think I, you know, cried the rest of the night, um, realizing that I wasn't ever going to see my babies or my husband or, you know, certain things. But once you do accept that um, and accept any other thing for that matter, whether it's being in a wheelchair or not being able to drive or, you know, it, you don't have to carry that burden anymore on your shoulders when you accept that or you accept help from other people. Because at that point, even though you're trying your best to live in the moment, 
at the same time, you can still set goals for yourself, which I know you like to do. And at that point, once you got through the acceptance of it and setting the burden aside, then you were able to set goals and say, this is what I need to do. And this is where I need to go. Yeah. So it was like, okay, well, I need to learn how to use a scene. I can, you know, I'm, I really am blind <laughs> and being able to go outside in the real world with a cane and, you know, feel the sidewalk and the difference between concrete and grass. And, you know, I had to go through all of that. And, and then it's, then you, you get this new perspective on life. You appreciate things in a different way and you take them in as a new experience. Yeah, you definitely learn with vision loss how to utilize your other senses a lot more. A lot of people think that we just instantly become some sort of superhero and all of a sudden, you know, we, we've got supersonic hearing and, and all these other wonderful things. And it's like, yeah, I, I wish that was the case. But we do have to, not only in your case, learning how to walk again and how to feed again and all these things we talked about, but learning how to use your other senses in place of your vision loss. Oh, yeah, definitely. I and, you know, there's still a learning process, you know, just a couple of years ago, I got a black eye because I ran into the corner of the wall because that just kind of happens when you're blind. And, <laughs> um, but yeah. Yes, it of... does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we get, I think maybe we just get a little overconfident sometimes, but anyways, uh, yeah. And it's, it's just navigating the world like in a different way. So with your vision loss, then I have a lot of listeners, of course, that, that are interested in tech and the how to of it and what people use. So what are kind of the, the go-to tools for you? You talked about your white cane, you're seeing eye cane. What other kind of tools do you use to help you out visually? Yeah, in my home, it's pretty much set up for me. So I, I have a washer and dryer that makes different sounds when you turn the knob and I keep three different baskets um, in my laundry room, a white, a black and a pastel. And so we all sort our laundry according to the three baskets and then I can do laundry on my own and I use those laundry pods because that's easier than pouring laundry because usually that would just get all over my arm when I would pour the liquid soap. <laughs> um, so just finding little little tools that work for you and then in my shower, I have a bench, you know, cause I have to use my wheelchair to get into the shower since I can't stand. And I have different pumps for different things. And I have a sink that doesn't have a cabinet underneath it so that I can wheel up to it. And, and, uh, I always have a joke, you know, that if you move the stuff in my house, you're in big trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, learned how to do my makeup again. And instead of having, you know, eight different colors. I use two different colors, you know, and it's all about simplifying your life and organizing. You know, I, I keep my dark pants in one area and my shorts in another and, you know, and my shirts organized in different colors as well. And then my phone, of course, is my favorite tool because it has linked me to the outside world in ways that I couldn't even imagine. So I do text messages and emails and I have all my books and my music and, I have different apps that I use that I can take a picture of something so I can know what it is that I'm looking at. Uh, there's a money reader, which I'm not very good at that being one handed touching money is really hard for me, but <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then like, you know, nowadays everything is all flat screens, you know, like 
the water on my refrigerator. So I put little bumps, little sticker bumps that are rubberized on my refrigerator. So I know how to get the water. And I have a faucet that automatically turns on for me. And, you know, that helps because you can follow the sound and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's all sorts of fun things out there. You could spend lots of money. <laughs> you can, and I'm sure you have. Absolutely. You, <laughs> yeah. You've needed to, but, but that's the thing is finding adaptive ways to do what you need to do. And whether it's like you said, something as simple as an automatic faucet or something like your phone that can speak with you, you know, as far as a, a voice feedback, voiceover on an iPhone, for instance, having those kind of tools, whether they're mainstream tools like the iPhone or something specific that you have to go out and get, you know, like a, an automatic faucet or, or even just something as simple as the bump dots to put on yep. different things so that you can find something tactily and, and that you're able to use it and say, okay, yep, that dot represents this, this dot represents that. Whatever it is that you need, somehow, some way, hopefully you can find an adaptive way to make it work for you. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's true. You can you can find any way and it and again be patient because you don't get all those things all at once. You know, you kind of figure one thing out and then you go, okay, well now I want to figure this out. And you go to the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, just, just like a young adult, you're learning things for the first time as a blind person. So, and uh, yeah, I mean, like I can go on my phone with Siri and ask her for a phone number for a restaurant and make a reservation. And, and I can do things like that now, which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely true that you find yourself using these tools, but you have to, like you were saying about finding what works for you and, and finding those tools and, and everybody has that that toolkit of things that they need to use, no matter what your disability is. And even if you're not disabled, everybody has something that they know they can go to that works for them. And, and especially when you're disabled or visually impaired, you have to find those tools that can adapt to help you in your life. Yeah. The other thing I think is really cool um, is that there are so many other people out there that want to help you as well. I've really noticed that um, people are eager to help you and people are just curious about what your life is like and what you do. And um, for me, I talked about earlier snowboarding when I was 12 uh, was one of my big things. And I wanted to ski with my family again. So there's this amazing foundation called Outdoors for All. And they took me up to the mountain again and I went on a sit ski and was able to ski with my family. And that dream would not have come true if it wasn't for other people helping me. Yeah. That's a really good point that you've, you've got to make sure you're not afraid to ask for help or to seek help because chances are you're going to find people that are not only willing to help you, but very able to help you. There might be something already in place that you didn't even realize was there, some sort of service, some sort of device or or whatever it might be, an agency that might be exactly what you need. And maybe you didn't know if you didn't ask, you might not have known. So you, can, right. you, you can't hold back in asking even a stranger for help or, or an agency or a service for help because you never know what kind of great experience or feedback you might be able to get. Right. And then next thing you know, like you, Tim, you help somebody with their computer and you meet your wife. Absolutely. <laughs> you got that right. And and I wouldn't change that for the moment. I, I was so smitten just like you. I was I was crazy <laughs> smitten. And and she knows it too. And she reminds yeah. me all the time. Um 
So for you then, Carol, going forward, because we're talking about living in the moment and adapting our lives and doing what we can for the now. But as we've talked about, and as I know, you you like goals, you like to set a goal and say, this is where I'm going to go. So you've got your book, Unshattered, that we've talked about available now uh, in print and audio. And you've been speaking and, 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 you know, sharing your story with a lot of people. What's, what's next for you? What do you want to do? What do you want to do next? You know, that is a really good question. <laughs> Cause I feel like I am, you know, what is my next goal? I, I definitely want to write another book um, that I'm sort of, we've already written an outline. Stacy, my co-author and I have put together and that'll be my next project over the next year for sure. And continuing to um, find new speaking engagements and different avenues. You know, I've always felt this connection to the military servicemen and the veterans and the trauma that they've gone through. And I've been able to meet several people in the military or veterans that have uh, prosthetics like I do. And I just feel connected to their stories and I would love to help out in any way as far as that goes. And um, yeah, so I, I hope that, that this will take me on a new path and I'll be able to see a new goal from that. That sounds really great. I think that that's a, a wonderful goal to have because you're finding something special in yourself that yes, you went through dark times. Yes, you went through some horrible things, but now you having learned from it and experienced it and not that it ever is perfect, not that it's ever a hundred percent better because of course, you know, we always are still dealing with these things ongoing. That being said, once we get to a place or, or a person like yourself gets to a place where they can then turn around and share it with other people, that can be very beneficial to those people and in a way very beneficial and therapeutic for yourself. Oh yeah. It's definitely therapeutic for me. I, I love it. That It makes me feel like I can turn something bad that happened to me into something good and, and help the next person. And because when I came home, I was like, okay, where's the book? And there's no book, even though my book isn't a how-to book. Um, it's just finding other people, you know, I've, I've made friends with other amputees or sepsis survivors and, and I have a close friend in Portland named Amaya and we, we can just pick up the phone and talk to each other. And, and she knows exactly how I'm feeling and I know how she's feeling because we are alike in, in being a survivor of sepsis and having prosthetic legs, you know? Yeah. It's helpful to find that commonality in, in other people that you may have and be able to utilize, you know, that help and, and be able to accept the help that's offered to you. Um, I know some people that live by another mantra of friends, family, and faith. And I know that that's very important to you as well of having that support system of your family, your friends, and your faith in your life. Yes, that's very true for sure. And I, you know, I have another life motto that I talk about. It's let go, embrace the moment and have fun. And let go means to let go of your fear, because if you can get over the fear of something, you'll be able to try things that you maybe didn't think you could try before. And also to forgive yourself and what happened to your situation, not to blame yourself or blame other people that it sometimes it is what it is, you know, and you don't have an answer for it. Um, And you're better off if you don't have to carry that burden. And the second thing, embrace the moment is just realizing what's right in front of you in the present and 
when you do that, gratitude fills your heart and you realize, you know, for me, there's a really strong chance that I shouldn't be here and I am here. And so I want to embrace every part of my life. And, and then lastly, to have fun. Cause I, I'm all about having fun, you know, whether it's <laughs> skiing with my family or trying to jump on the trampoline with my kids or, you know, traveling all over and trying new things. And, you know, I just, I love life and I, I, I want to keep on trying new things. I think that's fantastic advice and beautiful words to live by that can help anyone, no matter what they're going through. So before we wrap up, I always like to end with a question that I find insightful, helpful, sometimes inspirational, sometimes just totally silly and ridiculous. Depends on you and your answer. So I have a segment on the Life After Blindness podcast called Because of My Blindness. And I want to ask you, Carol, in your life and in your situation, since you've lost your vision these last 10 years, is there something in your life that's happened to you whatever it was, inspirational, funny, silly, educational, something that happened to you that because of your blindness, it may not have otherwise have happened to you. You may not have experienced it if it had you not been blind. Well, because of my blindness, I feel like I've become more creative and used my brain in a different capacity. You know, I think that I was a very visual person before I lost my sight and I had to really relearn in my brain how to, to do things differently, uh, to think outside the box, you know, start listening to an audio book or a tape in a different way. And that creativity has led to me becoming a public speaker and sharing my story in, in a fun way. And then, you know, being able to write the book, you know, I never thought that I would be an author and a writer um, and because I asked for help and I have a co-author that helps me with that, uh, I was able to accomplish something that I never thought was possible. No, I think that's a really great way to look at it and to know that within yourself, you were able to find that creativity and tap into that part of yourself that you, maybe you knew was there, but you were able to branch out and expand on that. And like you said, with the help of your co-author, Stacy, who, by the way, does a fantastic job with the narration. If anybody picks up the audiobook, she reads it very, very well. And, and you really get a depth and an understanding of your story through her reading of your book. So I, I do encourage people, uh, if, if they get the audiobook, to take a listen to that. But you you are able to find your creativity through what you've gone through. So I think that that's a great lesson learned for yourself. Yeah. The other thing too, because of my blindness is that I see people in a different way than you would if you could see them with your eyes. You know, I see them for who they are on the inside, um, what their potential is and maybe what they don't even see in themselves sometimes, which is a really cool thing to, to meet somebody and, and find out who they really are. I definitely agree with that. I've I've often said to friends of mine, you know what? I don't care if you're white, black, brown, or purple. It doesn't matter to me. If, if you're a jerk, then you're a jerk, <laughs> you know. And and that's not quite maybe the words I use, but but if you're a jerk, you're a jerk. And and if you're nice, you're nice. And I want to see you. I want to see the person that you are. I don't care, you know, what you look like or or what uh, you know other things are going on. I want to be interested in you and, and and know you for who you are. Visually, 
I, I don't care. You know, I can't see you. And so uh, I'm going to judge you the best that I can as how you are and how you treat people and how you talk to me. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful thing, right? When, when you see someone like that. It definitely is. Well, Carol, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the Life After Blindness Spotlight. I really enjoyed your book and your story. I feel awkward saying that because it's so tragic and what you went through is so awful. <laughs> to say you enjoy it is awkward, but but in a way, because of what you were able to accomplish and where you were able to come out at the end of it and surrounding yourself with the people that you did and, and experiencing what you have uh, I think it puts a lot of things in perspective for people and, and a lot of different things, as I said, at the top of this conversation, there's a lot that people can get out of your story. They don't have to be, uh, you know, blind. They don't have to have lost any limbs. They can still garner a lot from, from what you've gone through. Thank you. Yeah. I really wanted to write the book for everyone so that, you know, um, we can all relate with loss. You know, I, I tell people that I realized this in the beginning that we're all going through loss. We all just have different kinds of loss, you know, whether it's cancer or losing a job or a home or like me becoming blind or an amputee, my loss isn't any greater than anyone else's. It's just different. And the more that we can help each other, the better off we'll be. And yeah, I just, I, I feel really honored to be on your show, Tim. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and just wanted to give a warning that when you do read the book that you might need some Kleenex and chocolate. <laughs> Definitely Kleenex and chocolate, but also <laughs> be prepared to laugh out loud. I, I will say for, for as much as there is sadness and, and, and tissue moments, there's definitely enough uh, laugh out loud moments. So yes, I encourage everyone to definitely pick up the book in any format that you can. And again, Carol, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Yeah, thank you, Tim.